Welcome to the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies. This podcast was recorded on 19th of October 2010. It features the novelist Barbara Trapedo and is introduced by Beverly Tarquini. Good evening everybody and welcome to the first of our publishing seminars here at Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies. I'm delighted to welcome tonight Barbara Trapedo. Barbara Trapedo is an internationally successful author, renowned for her dark satirical comedies. She's written a number of novels, including Brother of the More Famous Jack, which won the Whitbread Special Prize for Fiction, Temples of Delight, shortlisted for the Sunday Express Book of the Year Awards, and Frankie and Stanky. In its mix of people from different spheres, her latest novel, published this year, entitled Sex and Stravinsky, throws up the complexity, cruelty and richness of the global world, while, as a sequence of personal stories, it comes together like a dance, a masquerade in which things are not always what they seem. Born in South Africa and now Oxford-based, Barbara Trapedo has a loyal and ever-growing following of fans and is a popular and regular speaker at book events and festivals. I'm very grateful to Barbara for giving up her time to talk to us tonight and she's going to talk to us about the author, Challenges and Expectations. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you so much and thank you for having me here. Um, I, I must say what normally one does is one goes around chatting about one's most recent book and reading from it or being interviewed. So uh, um, Beverly said, would I come and talk about you know how I became an author and my experience of publishing as editors and agents and so on which is I imagine what would relate most to what you do so uh, I'm just going to uh, talk off the cuff a bit about those things and I do tend to ramble and rather we're both so shut me up uh, um, I'm going to take my watch off so that I don't go on forever but as to how I became an author uh, you know, I was never one of those people who had a clear, a clear kind of career plan. I never thought I want to be a writer. You know, I, I grew up in South Africa, which I left when I was 20 in 1963. And uh, uh, one lived under such sort of cultural cringe, you know, that I, uh, it, it, things are quite different now, but there was a perception that, that um, you know, London was the cultural metropolis and, and I certainly grew up even through my English degree thinking that, um, you know, in order to write a book, you needed to be already famous and dead. And I, I wouldn't have dreamt of the idea of writing a book. And I certainly never met anybody who'd written a novel. So when I came to write my own novel, uh, which happened by accident, um, you know, having been educated abroad, I didn't have any networks. I didn't know anyone. You know, I hadn't been to university with anyone who was now working for a publisher or a newspaper or that sort of thing. I had absolutely no idea how publishing worked. And uh, I didn't really even know I was writing a novel. But I suppose it was in my mid-30s. Uh, I was uh, talking out some anecdote to a friend of mine, a very motivated, productive academic friend who had a full-time academic job and put in her own RSJs and had six children and grew her own vegetables and so on. And uh, um, she stopped me in the middle of this story and she said, you know, it gets on my nerves about you. 
you are such a storyteller and you just throw it all away talking out stories at dinner parties and, and I want you to start writing it down. I want you to write a story for the Guardian short story competition. And uh, I hadn't written, you know, I was one of those small children who always wrote. When I thought back, uh, I thought, I think some of us do that and others don't. But uh, uh, when you're a child, you, you have, I, you know, I always told myself stories as a way of making the walk from the bus stop to home less boring. You know, you can easily get yourself into a sort of mindset where you can make people who aren't real start talking in the back of your head and, and or sometimes you're inside them, sometimes you're listening to them, talking to each other. Or I would make little books for my mother. I was always making, cutting, sticking, and I would write stories, illustrate them, you know, blanket stitch the spine together and so on. But I'd forgotten that. Anyway, when the friend said this to me, I felt a bit needled. So uh, I thought, okay, I'll give it a go. And I invented the family that became the family in my first novel. And I thought, gosh, you haven't done this since you were about nine years old. You haven't sat here listening to pretend people talking to each other. And, and it was a very ordeal thing. Uh, and I, I dreamed up this family. They were quite a sort of stroppy, left-wing, highbrow, Hampstead-ish sort of family. Uh, quite, it was quite a sort of cross-cultural marriage with lots of stroppy children. And without thinking about it, I used that device of introducing a stranger into their midst who tells the story about this family and becomes involved with them. And uh, the moment I began, I found it completely compelling. Uh, and it was almost like writing music. It was mainly sequences of dialogue. I, I just uh, uh, stalked these people and followed them around. And what they said entertained me. And I wrote it down. And uh, um, I changed the rhythms of the dialogue. I made it more taut and, or, or more uh, lyrical. Uh, and uh, didn't have any sort of plot. But I very quickly realized that that this wasn't a short story, and I still can't write short stories, and I'm not very interested in them. I mean, unless it's Alice Munro or Laurie Moore or someone who's amazing at writing them. But I thought, what I want to do is stalk these people indefinitely and sleuth around in their lives. And it's, in a way, uh, like being a bit of a detective or a, a psychologist, you think, why does this person go for that person? Why are these people always fighting? Or, um, uh, I thought, this is a long story. And because just then my husband was moving from Durham to Oxford and I started having babies and making heavy weather of that. And, you know, I always had about nine other people's children in my house when my two were little. And, um, so I, I put it away in a box for about uh, seven, eight years. And then, um, you know, you get quite a sort of highly educated class of mother in North Oxford. And one day, this uh, medical historian who brought her little boy to play with my son said, uh, I've written a short story. Can I show it to you? So she showed me the story, started reading it. And I thought, well, I do better dialogue than this. Um, <laughs> Because, uh, you know, she was writing, she had these clever people in her story and they were all kind of talking about Virginia Woolf and stuff. And I thought, 
brainy people don't necessarily do that, you know. They may use more sophisticated syntax, but they just grumble about why no one's fed the dog or, you know, why is it always me filling the pepper grinder or uh, those sorts of things. Uh, and, and it also reminded me that I had this rudimentary story stuck away in a box. And I said, I started writing something once and she wanted to see it and I showed it to her and she picked it up and read it what effectively became the first chapter of my first novel. And she said, hey, I really love this. I want you to go on and finish it. Just write it for me. So I did actually, I don't know why, but I sat down night after night and my house was very busy. It was full of my husband's graduate students and everyone staying over. And I would cook up vats of spaghetti for people and then I would wait for them to go to bed because I thought, I don't know if you're becoming a mad woman, but you are more interested in spending your night hours with those people who aren't real than with this lot that are sitting around your table. And so I'd wait for everyone to go to bed and then I'd drink lots of black coffee and get a second wind and I would you know, write by hand and then type on a little Olivetti and just knock myself out with Tipex as you did in those days. And uh, I just could not stop doing it. It became a complete compulsion. And when I couldn't write because I was too busy pushing swings and so on, I just recited this novel to myself. So it was quite a sort of musical thing, really. Uh, I, I quite literally knew the whole novel off by heart. I, I, it was a sort of party trick, actually. I could start at page one and recite it. And, uh, um, and the great luxury of your first novel is there's nobody knows you're doing it and nobody's asking for it. And so you can just play about with it forever. So by the time I finally, uh, you know, had polished and honed every line and made it torture and thrown away bin bags of extraneous material, uh, it was quite polished. And I think also because it's a very different thing from academic writing, you know, and uh, while I was being scrupulously non-autobiographical, you nonetheless get the feeling that the whole thing is coming from another part of your brain, not from your sort of intellectual front brain. It's more like dreaming. And uh, it's, uh, um, and the characters come to you like people in dreams as well, actually, you know, you hear the sound of them and you know what sort of shape they are and there's a kind of aura around them. They're sort of menacing or friendly or doomed or uh, commanding and you have that sense, but you don't actually see, you see them more in silhouette. You don't see their faces clearly. You're sort of groping towards that. Only 10 years later, someone comes towards you in the street and you think, that's Roger Goldman. Now I know what he looked like. Um, and it's quite hard not to go up and touch that person. <laughs> uh, but anyway, once I'd finished it, uh, for the friend who, who loved it, and, and by this time I'd shown it to about three or four other people. In fact, that darling girl, Ruth Piccadilly, who died, um, had a memory of being about 12 and sitting in bed with flu with her mother and they passed the pages to each other. And uh, um, I thought maybe it's a novel. So uh, I had never heard of a literary agent and I didn't know one publisher from another. And I hadn't been reading an awful lot of contemporary fiction. I'd been too busy with babies and stuff. And so I went to the Blackwell's paperback bookshop and I thought, you know, who publishes the sort of books that you remember enjoying reading? 
And so uh, I thought most often it was Jonathan Cape. So I thought, okay, I'll stick it in a brown paper bag and send it to Jonathan Cape. You know, I didn't know that you were supposed to send a stamped addressed envelope, write a synopsis, send a sample, chapter, any of that. I just shoved the whole thing in the brown paper bag with a letter saying, this is my novel. And then I opened the bag again because I remembered that it didn't have a title. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> sent it off. And actually, um, that was a really stupid thing to do. So if you were thinking of writing a novel rather than editing them, just do not do what I did. Just find yourself an agent because, um, uh, you know, n fiction that comes, as they say, off the street, uh, it just joins a great pile. And publishing houses, as you no doubt know, have rooms full of manuscripts. And then every now and again, they get the new, the new girl who makes the coffee to cast an eye over some of them. And such a girl looked at my typescript and uh, wrote me a very polite letter saying, you know, unfortunately your novel won't fit into our lists. Do you have anything else in the drawer? Which I didn't. And uh, so I, you know, I had no ambitions. So I just shoved it back in a drawer and forgot about it for some months. And uh, which is pretty really, because when it won the Whitbread Prize and I met Tom Meshler and Liz Calder, who was undoubtedly the best fiction editor in London. This was 1981, 82. Uh, and, um, you know, had uh, currently published Martin Amos and Julian Barnes and, and that little clique of people who are so admired. And uh, she would have changed my life, actually. But, uh, you know, both of them said, uh, you know, well, Tom Meshler said, who is the idiot in my office who turned down your novel? And her name was burned into my brain, but I was very kind. I didn't. I said, oh, I've forgotten. <laughs> she was, in fact, the same poor girl to whom Henry Root kept writing those mad letters. Have you read the Henry Root letters? She kept having to kind of put him off coming into the office with his proposals. Um, and um, anyway, so then I sent it to Galatz about six months later because a neighbor of mine who was typesetting something for Galantz said, why don't you send it to Galantz? And, uh, I thought, yeah, why not? Because the sort of older hero in my book was a kind of left book club reading type. And uh, I had no idea that Galantz was no longer that sort of publisher, kind of radical left-wing publisher. Um, and um, they were not, in fact, very good fiction publishers. They, they were very sweet to me. Uh, you know, Livia Galantz never really wanted to be a publisher. She took it on out of loyalty when her father died. And she hovered in a back room doing the old detective stories and, and uh, really just wanted to play the French horn. And, uh, um, but Galantz wrote to me within the week saying, we love your novel, we want to publish it, but tell us who you are. And so I wrote them a little thing about who I was. And then I bought some clothes for the first time in years and, and went and had lunch with the editor. And they paid me an advance of 600 pounds and said, you know, we all love your book, but it's not going to change your life. And um, the whole experience of that first novel was just lovely. They were nice to me. It, uh, you know, got a book club deal. It got several foreign, um, foreign uh, rights. Um, it was serialized, it won a prize. It, um, it got fabulous reviews. 
in all sorts of places where I didn't expect it. You know, I thought, this is a book that Guardian reading women are going to love. And in fact, my first review that jumped the gun was in The Guardian. And this woman said, um, Galantz, who had asked me to write this stuff about myself, I didn't realize they were going to put all that on the cover. And I also had no idea that an author could actually say, I don't want that on the cover, and that's not the cover I want. And uh, I just mentioned the fact that I'd written this novel at the kitchen table. Well, where else would you write it, you know? Um, and this review began. Um, now, this was a, a sharp, satirical, funny novel about clever Hampstead's intellectuals. And uh, it said, um, uh, here is yet another novel from a woman's kitchen table. And at this kitchen table, stuffed hearts must have been served because this novel is capital T, true, capital R, romance. And I thought, I don't believe this. And I wept and cried. After a while, you stop doing that. You even stop reading the reviews. You just think, don't read them, just bank the checks. <laughs> but. Um, I was so affronted by this. And then that, that novel came out before the book was published. And then when it was published, it got all these fabulous reviews by quite sort of establishment men in the Financial Times and the Spectator and so on, and who wined and dined me and turned my head. And it was all great fun. It was just lovely. And uh, I, I thought that happened to everybody when the first novel came out. It was only years later I met people who said, you know, they'd sat at home eating Marmite sandwiches. and. Nobody sent them flowers or took them out to lunch. And their editor forgot to send their book to any of the reviewers' desks, and so it didn't get any reviews and that kind of thing. Um, so I was really uh, lucky with that book. It was a great experience. And I had no um, agent, of course. And when you write a book that's well-received, agents start knocking on your door and writing to you, and all of the agents in London did. And uh, I just ignored them all because I thought, what do I need an agent for? Um, until suddenly, uh, I, I, Galantz had uh, an agreement with Cosmopolitan magazine to publish an extract from my book. And uh, I tell you what Galantz had done. You know, I, as I say, I'd really worked on this book. It was quite polished, and uh, which is why they didn't believe that this was anyone's first novel. They thought I was someone trying to con them because Doris Lessing had done that quite recently handed in a novel under a pseudonym. And they said, you know, we didn't believe this was anyone's first novel. And uh, in fact, Galantz didn't change a word of it. In this uh, quite very good but rather buttoned up editor phoned me up just before they sent it off to the printers. And printing was much more complicated in those days. And she said, uh, she put in, they put in three commas and published it as I wrote it. She said, uh, uh, Barbara, uh, shouldn't it be uh, piss off comma, you old cow? <laughs> and uh, I don't remember. The family were having a quarrel. Fuck off comma, you old bitch, etc. <laughs> uh, and then they just published it like that. So when I opened Cosmopolitan, I found they hadn't, put it, they hadn't published an extract. What they'd done was abridged my whole novel and just uh, tweaked the prose here and there. And, changed the odd thing that they thought was right uh, when it was wrong and so on. I, you know, I thought the word was God. I was so outraged. I just wept for weeks. And later I met Faye Weldon who said, oh, but of course, cosmopolitan always do that. You just ignore it. They sell so many copies of your book.
stay friends with Cosmopolitan, but I didn't. Um, I thought, I need an agent to protect me from these evil people. Now, which of these agents shall I have? And uh, my husband said, oh, well, you should just recently private eye had had a catty thing about Pat Kavanagh, who is now sadly dead. But uh, um, she was quite uh, fierce. And there was some reference to her legendary, uh, her, her legendary bad temper and greed. My husband said, you should have her. But I thought I would be too scared of her because I'm quite a wimp, really. So I had some other woman who'd come and knocked on my door and told me what she, she could do for me. And uh, I went into her offices the first time, and um, she said, Pat Kavanagh wants to meet you. And Pat Kavanagh came out and said, you know, I so wanted you, but Caroline got to you first, and, and uh, I was at school with you. And uh, I want to shake the hand of the only good thing ever to come out of Durban Girls High School. And that was me. And I thought, well, it was Virginia Wade. She was our other claim to fame. Um, and uh, I didn't, I didn't know she'd been in my school because she was in the, she was a little one when I was in the sixth form. But anyway, um, so I had this rather ferocious agent who I was terrified of, who told me lies all the time, and the publication of my second novel was just horrible. For one thing, the Galantz editor left, and a rather spineless woman took over who caused quite a few authors to sink into depression and give up writing because she was never enthusiastic, you know. It's a kind of a lonely job writing. You're kind of hanging around at home while all your friends are retraining themselves as solicitors and architects and going off on the train in smart clothes with briefcases. And, and you're mooching around at home in your pajamas eating too many sweets. And you know, when it's going well, it's just fabulous. You think this is the nicest, I've got the best job in the world, it's best fun. My research this morning is lying on the floor listening to Monteverdi madrigals and trying to decide which one he was singing to her. And uh, isn't this great? And then other times when you're finding it too hard or you're trying to escape the work and, and you think, I'm just Mrs. Nobody hanging around at home in my pajamas. And, and uh, so um, you need someone to be positive about what you do. That doesn't mean that, you know, they can't sort of say, actually, we think chapter two needs to be fleshed out a bit more because it's not clear uh, why this person does this or that, or it's not clear to me. Uh, but... Um, um, she was utterly sort of neutral about everything. And um, I remember on one occasion, she actually nagged and nagged me to send her in a chapter. I have a, I, I've never joined a writer's group, read my stuff to anybody else. I read it out loud all the time to myself. In fact, I act it out. I choreograph scenes. I swap chairs. I scream at myself in the mirror. I burst into tears, turn my living room into a train. Uh, <laughs> you know, do funny voices, record myself, play it back. Uh, and so it's quite a sort of ordeal acting out thing. Uh, but uh, I do not, uh, uh, I'm terribly inhibited at, at, at showing it to anyone until I've rewritten it 59 times. Um, and she nagged a chapter out of me and then she phoned me up to say, Barbara, I'm just phoning to tell you that uh, this doesn't work. <laughs> And it almost stopped me wanting to go on with the book, actually. 
and uh, everything went wrong. I went abroad. She gave it a terrible sort of wimpy pastel women's weekly sort of cover, all kind of lilac and, and yucky, and um, and horrified me by saying, uh, you know, the figure on the cover looks rather like you. And you know, I, I always tried so scrupulously not to build biographical godly because I thought it would be boring. Uh, and um, by this time, I, I, I oh, and I had the, the ferocious agent who who um, said, "Oh, we're going to sell lots of pots of money in America." And then Viking, who adored my first novel, claimed that the second half of the book had never arrived. The editor had a nervous breakdown. It all went wrong. Uh, it ended up being published by some rather hopeless creature. I can't remember. Was there an outfit called Franklin Watt? Or anyway, uh, um, kind of uh, really wrecked my career in America because I kept going from one publisher to another. Uh, and uh, so that wasn't much fun, really. Not at all as much fun second time round. And so I, it left me with a feeling that um, really you ought to go straight from your first novel to your third and miss out the second. Um, what happened then was um, I started writing my third novel. And because what had happened, I was staying up all night, you know, and sleeping for about two hours, getting up, um, kind of dragging myself, reading, falling asleep over bedtime stories that I was reading my children. And so they, they, my son learned to read quite early. He got so tired of me falling asleep over mm -hmm. The Hobbit. And I would wake up at four in the morning, squashed into a little bunk bed, and think, oh, I've done it again. I've fallen asleep. <laughs> and uh, so I started getting up at four in the morning and writing then instead. And I discovered that's marvelous, because you fall out of bed, and you're still in a dream state, and the world is entirely yours, and you just have that wonderful sense of unreality you know, that sort of special place. Uh, you know the way Jesus, when he's sermonizing, or, or uh, there's some transfiguring experience, or Elijah, they cross the Jordan, or there's some stepping into another place, or he preaches from a boat. And it's in a way, it's a bit like that. You, you have to be um, outside of your ordinary life. And I found four o'clock in the morning was great for that. I started writing things that were more kind of circular and patterned and being much braver about taking on characters who were not necessarily the sort of people who were people who I liked or, or you know, felt in tune with. And, and uh, the patterns just set themselves, and they still do. And. Uh, um, what happened to me is that when I wrote that third novel, Temples of Delight, Kay Dunbar, who had just started the Ways with Words Festival, um, asked me to come and talk. It was the very first one she did at what had been Dartington School in Devon. And no one had ever put me in a on a platform before. Uh, because, you know, my, my first novelist had got all these lovely reviews and won the Whitbread Prize, and then it was never in the bookshop because nobody marketed it. Uh, which makes quite a difference. And every single time when I go, uh, you know, to um, 
to see an orthopedic surgeon or a dental specialist or something, this medical consultant will examine me and then he'll say shyly, and I did love your book. And it's always my first novel, which was somehow everybody's growing up book because people read it at university and so on. And, and I conceived the idea that there must have been one copy that was passed around every medical school in England. Because <laughs> it didn't sell much, but somehow, somehow everyone had read it. Uh, and um, after I, I went to the Ways with Words Festival, and Kay Dunbar just made this lovely speech, and she said, you know, um, when you start a literature festival, then, you know, lots of publishers and agents ring you up and press their authors on you. And nobody's pressed Barbara Trepido on me. It's uh, This is my indulgence to me, and I'm giving her the platform. And she just put me on the platform entirely by myself for an hour. And uh, I just talked and read. And in the audience was um, this fantastic editor, Alexandra Pringle, who um, thereafter never tried to poach me. Both she and Liz Calder started writing me letters, sort of indicating that if I ever came unstuck with my publisher, they would like to publish me. For some reason, I had this notion, rather like Mozart, you know, who would say, but how can I leave my dear emperor? I thought you stayed with your publisher all your life, even though Galantz were being kind of quite dreary with me. And um, um, meanwhile, the agent was uh, uh, saying to me, you really ought to leave those dreary women at Galantz. You know, they're not doing anything for you. And, uh, and um, But what she did with my third novel is she said, now, and what finally persuaded me to leave was that Galantz was being bought by some big American publisher and, and the and the dreary editor wouldn't tell me who that publisher was. And I thought, actually, I am under no obligation to stay in this situation. And um, because I knew nothing about publishers, you know, I, thinking back now, the agent waved a bit of paper under my nose and she said, now, I could turn your head by reading you these uh, people who want to publish you. And thinking back, it was Jonathan Burnham at Chateau, it was Peter Strauss at Picador, it was Liz Calder at Gape and so on. But she said, I think the editor for you is Susie Watt at Michael Joseph. So she signed me up with Susie Watt at Michael Joseph. And uh, I kept wondering thereafter why this book that I was so proud of was just not getting reviewed when the others were. And then I went to this Michael Joseph party. And um, I thought, why is everybody in this room um, you know, like Miss Reed of Thrush Green kind of authors. And it began to dawn on me slowly that Michael Joseph at that time anyway was uh, publishing big cell, very middle-brow commercial fiction. And those sorts of books sell in great numbers and they don't get reviewed. And uh, I was just completely in the wrong box as other publishers then started telling me. And then when I, I read from it, it uh, weighs with words. Um, Alexandra heard me and she took me to lunch. She was with Esther Freud and somebody else. And, and she said, you know, I've never read you. I've never read your book because it's Michael Joseph. And then she read all my stuff. And, and, uh, and um, so it 
practically started a war when I moved to her, but she was then the editor at Hamish Hamilton, which was part of Penguin, and they were, you know, publishers of literary fiction, which is where I was most comfortable. And uh, I had the most marvellous time at Hamish Hamilton because, gosh, for the first time, I felt I've got an editor because this woman was so in tune with what I was doing. In fact, she publishes a range of authors and she's in tune with all of them, but she understands what authors are trying to do. If she ever makes a little suggestion about your book, it never jars. It's it's because it's something that you know about your book already that's in the back of your brain that you somehow haven't brought to the front of your brain until she says it. Uh, whereas, you know, in the past I'd have people just imposing ghastly covers on me and I didn't realise that, you know, if you just say early enough, this is the sort of cover I want, that's fine. Uh, you have to be assertive early on. You don't want to wait till they've kind of given you the ghastly cover and then whinge and say you don't like it because by that time they've spent money on it um, and they're reluctant to change it. But um, what is wonderful is to have an editor who always gets back to you promptly, who involves you in all those decisions, who explains why they are doing things, you know, and I am perfectly uh, willing to trust people if you know because i know they know more about marketing than i do if you trust them and uh, um right now my la my uh, new novel has got a hilariously kind of chiclet cover but well, the paperback the paperback is uh, has got kind of baby pink cursive writing on it and a ballerina throwing herself across a grand piano with her legs in the air and and i said hey this cover's good fun but uh uh, is this because you need to get it into Tesco? <laughs> Which I think is the depressing truth now about <laughs> paperback books. Because of, you know, Amazon sort of wrecking publishing and booksellers, and, and um, um, the publishers are having quite a hard time, and they've got to get their stuff into Tesco in the hope that people are going to throw it into a trolley along with the, the soap powder. Um, so that's okay. I mean, it's aesthetically rather a nice cover, but I'm quite sure that anyone who buys that book in Tesco is going to hurl it against the wall after the first five pages. Um, now, I mean, um, you have to realize if you're an editor, I suppose, that, that um, you know, authors don't necessarily know anything about publishing and you need to explain things to them, which is what Alexandra does so brilliantly, and other editors I've had didn't. My very first editor, for instance, uh, you know, you don't understand their terminology or anything, and she, she phoned me up uh, one day, she said, uh, oh, uh, Barbara, uh, about pre-publication publicity, uh, uh, think about it, give us some names, would you? And I thought, I don't know what she's talking about. And uh, I was too shy to say what sort of people, and, and I thought, does she mean famous people, or would that be a bit impertinent, you know, does she mean Iris Murdoch, and, and you know, uh, what sort of people does she mean? And I thought, who can I ask? You know, I'd always lived with academics, but oddly enough, never met anyone who'd ever written a fiction book. Uh, 
And uh, the only person I could think of was this <coughs> English literature don who was sort of in my neighborhood and we'd gone to his Christmas parties and he'd always been perfectly friendly and nice. And I, I knew that he occasionally reviewed fiction for a Sunday newspaper and I thought, well, I'll ask him, you know, what he thinks she means. Um, so I phoned him up and I said, uh, um, can I come and see you because uh, I, I need your expertise? And uh, he said, yes, yes, you know, come on Thursday at 11 o'clock. So I trotted round to his house, only five minutes from my house, knock, knock on the door. And he wasn't there. I thought, oh, he's forgotten, never mind, walked on. And uh, then I phoned him up and I said, you know, I thought we were going to meet this morning, but maybe we can make it another time. He said, oh, okay, yes, let's make it next Tuesday. So off I went next Tuesday, knocked on the door. And this time, no one answered the door, but I thought I heard a little bit of scuffling going on in the house. And I came away and I thought, well, don't get paranoid, but he's avoiding you. And I thought, I bet I know what he's thinking. He's thinking, oh my God, there's this local kind of playgroup mother who wants to do a defill and she wants to be my student. And he's, so uh, I th by this time the editor had phoned and said, oh, by the way, we've sent your book to David Lodge, Margaret Travel, et cetera, whoever it was, I can't remember. And uh, so the need had passed, so I thought, I'll just go and reassure him I'm not wanting to sign up as a student. Uh, and uh, um, so I knocked on the door, and he wasn't there, but this time his wife answered the door. And uh, I said, oh, oh, you know, I, I, I keep m m missing your husband, and uh, uh, um, if you could just explain to him that uh, it, it's nothing really, all, all I... I uh, and thinking back, I was so pathetically humble. I said, you see, I, I've, I've written this little novel and uh, um, I, I thought she might be able to advise me about it. Before I'd even explained, she said, uh, yes, uh, we had heard that you had um, written this uh, novel. Uh, but frankly, my nameless husband, who I better not mention, uh, uh, frankly, uh, he's not in a position to uh, advise you about the sort of women's magazines that might want to review it. And I thought, oh, right, okay. <laughs> and off I went. And uh, ever since this person has been so awful to me, and I began to think, he wants to write a novel, doesn't he? <laughs> because. Among the sheaf of wonderful reviews I got, uh, there was one rather poisonous one in the TLS, written by a person whose name was suspiciously like an anagram of this particular <laughs> academic's name. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, uh, see, see, anyway, that was just a, a, a funny thing. Um, I was telling Beverly just earlier that um, um, I now have the best editor and publisher and agent in the world, and I love them both. Um, but uh, um, I was telling you that story about, uh, um, you know, Penguin restructured massively at some point, and they just cut and slashed, and Hamish Hamilton disappeared. It just stayed as a, a label on a spine. and. Uh, out went the wonderful Andrew Franklin, who was head of Hamish Hamilton within the week, 
uh, he then started Profile Books, which has just gone from strength to strength, actually, which is just great. Because there he was, you know, with his two little children and his house and his mortgage. And, and I thought, oh, no, he's starting a publishing house and we know what happens to them. But he has just done so well. And he was so bright and clever and loved books. And uh, there was just a heap of wonderful people there. There was uh, the first pub the publicity woman who dealt with my book juggling at Hamish Hamilton was Fiona McMorrow, who then went on to start her own um, publicity outfit. I don't know if you know about her. It's just a fabulous Irish woman. Um, and uh, um, anyway, so that by the time I got to hand in what I suppose was my own fifth novel called The Travelling Horn Player. I, I handed it in to Hamish Hamilton, but in fact it was the new head of Viking who, who was actually editing all the Hamish Hamilton books. So they were going to say Hamish Hamilton on the spine. There wasn't anyone at Hamish Hamilton. And because uh, they'd all been sacked or they'd dumped. And uh, um, what had happened is that uh, they'd sort of sacked everyone and restructured, and then they had brought in a woman from Heinemann as editor-in-chief, whereupon the very competent head of Viking, which was another of the Penguin imprints, um, had left, feeling with some justification that that job should have been hers. And uh, the assassin moved in and then sacked even more people and brought in all her old friends from Heinemann and so on. And it was all just very unpleasant. But she'd um, put this new person in charge of Viking, who's a kind of person who comes from quite an academic family and is good at kind of uh, sort of miming intelligence without actually having any. And um, <laughs> she'd never edited books before. And I remember. Two women I'm really fond of, Helen Dunmore and Pat Barker, and me, we handed in typescripts at the same time. And uh, this woman nearly drove us mad. I remember Pat Barker just saying, I will never write another novel ever. And she said to me, this editor, oh, I'm feeling so confident in my editorial role. I'm, I've, uh, I've put blue pencil all over Helen Dunmore's new typescript. And I thought, oh, Helen's going to be pleased about that. Uh, and then she had me in for an editorial day, and she said, um, oh, I do love your book. Uh, um, a few questions where, uh, of course, there's no such thing as heterosexual AIDS, so we'll have to change all that. And uh, so I said, well, um, you know, actually, this is set in, this set in a period in Edinburgh where there was a very unenlightened policy about needles. There was a lot of shared needles and, and so on. And uh, also I said to her, can I tell you about my two, you know, very clued up, well-educated middle-class women friends who have AIDS and this is how they happen to get this disease. And I told their stories to her and then she said, but you know, there's no such thing as heterosexual AIDS, so we'll have to change all that, and we'll have to have a scene showing Izzy shooting up the needles, train spotting had just come out, and all of that. And, uh, and I thought, is she deaf, or what is the matter with this woman? And, and then she would say, um, 
Now, you will have to explain how it is that he recognizes Ellen at the interview because, uh, and I said, well, they've met before at the sister's funeral, if you remember, in chapter two. And uh, uh, she just blanked me the whole time, just blanked me. Um, and I thought, I don't believe this. So I did what I have done ever since. I just wept like a weed over Alexandra Pringle, who said, just leave it with me. Um, I'll deal with it. And then she would phone up this woman and say, just leave Barbara's <coughs> novel alone. It's perfect. <laughs> and, uh, and Mary Wesley, sweet Mary Wesley, who'd chosen to befriend me at around this time, uh, said, um, well, what I would do is thank her profusely for all her help and then do absolutely nothing. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that you can be slightly driven mad by people who aren't sensitive to what you do and who don't listen to you. And uh, I've known so many people whose publishers just ignore them or belittle them or dump them. I know a chap who had a heart attack, uh, so his novel was submitted a year late and the publishers just uh, dumped it, you know, they wouldn't publish it. And then he was in the wilderness for some years until he met. Johnny Geller, who said, I'll take you one, and he hasn't looked back. But um, um, it is so wonderful if you have an editor who understands what you're doing and also uh, doesn't leave you in limbo for months, because I've met people who tell me stories about agents, you know, who say, yes, yes, love your book, but we think you should write chapter seven backwards and resubmit it. So off they go home and write chapter seven backwards, resubmit it, and then they hear nothing for five months. Uh, and that person is always in Geneva or out of the office or on the other line or something. And uh, um, by the time they do eventually hook up with, with the agent again, the agent, so much time has passed, the agent's forgotten what she said last time. And she says, uh, I think you should write chapter 10 the right way around after all, or make this person the main protagonist and not that person, etc. And that's just terrible. That's just terrible. Um, you need someone who will reply promptly to emails and, and that kind of thing. Um, you know, I'm waffling a bit now. I'm just thinking um, if there's something else I've scrawled on my bit of paper here that I should be telling you. I must say, the, the time I got sold to Michael Joseph, and this woman did double my sales overnight by giving me a lot of gold embossing and trekking me around the country. And the low point was when I was at a branch of W.H. Smith somewhere in the Midlands. Uh, <coughs> And she would make me talk about my book. She would, there would be expensive dinners in Cafe Regano in Glasgow and God knows where. And then I'd eat this lovely dinner with all the reps and booksellers. And then she would make me stand up and talk about my book. And because she was always there, I felt I had to say something new about my book every single time. I couldn't say the same thing twice. And uh, um, I began to notice that she was beginning to look a little bit pale if, you know, I kind of used any sort of metaphor or something. And, and I, that it began to dawn on me that she was wanting my book to sound really middle-brow. And uh, at one point, these ladies at W.H. Smith were sitting down and knitting while I was trying to talk about my 
gold embossed book. Um, and, and that was um, no fun. The other thing is, um, gosh, if you find someone in a publishing house who actually writes good copy, that is so fabulous, and I praise them to the skies. There's a, a young woman at Bloomsbury. You know, so often uh, people will write jacket copy or something, and you think, but this person's got a first-class degree from Oxford, and why is it that her tenses are all wrong, or she hasn't noticed she's used the same word three times in one little sentence, and um, the, the, the sentences are quite um, clunking anyway, you know, they don't kind of flow to a nice tune, and um, she just hasn't got the angel of writing hovering over her, this person. And then uh, um, there's this young woman at Bloomsbury who is uh, a lovely uh, tall girl with a Swedish father and a Japanese mother. And uh, um, every word she writes is just gold. You think, that's fine. I don't have to tinker with this flab. Erica's written it. Um, and that is, that's a great thing. It's a great thing to value. Also, um, quite a lot of books are quite sloppily proofread these days. And uh, um, I, I was very reassured to see that Bloomsbury actually still sit you down for a whole day with a copy editor who has done her homework and uh, checked everything. And you can argue with her, of course, if you think you're right and she's wrong. The best copy editor that I ever had, and I fell in love with him long distance, was a, a chap in New York called Ed Cedarbaum. I don't know if he's famous, but this person is a fantastic copy editor. He must have written me about that much copy, <coughs> you know, just every light, nothing passed him by. Gosh, I wonder if he's still alive. I do hope so. Of course, it must be a very difficult job working in publishing because, um, um, you know, all authors are different, aren't they? And uh, um, I think the best editors and agents actually probably understand that people who write fiction are very aberrant. You know, it's not really normal for grown-ups to talk to pretend people in the back room. Uh, and uh, um, really good editors understand that they're likely to be very kind of strange, introverted, slightly dysfunctional people um, with wobbly identities, and you just have to give them their head and not try and be too short back and sides with them. And, um, and, and that way they'll do their best for you. I'm just waffling now, aren't I? And I think I should stop. Because um, maybe you want to ask me something, and, and I'll say something. But I, I must say that just once along the line, I'm trying to remember where, uh, my first novel ended up in the hands of a woman who I think is also dead, called Maureen Rissick, who was at Bodley Head. And um, someone had given it to her without me asking them to. And she said, come in and see me, come in and see me. And so I did. And... Uh, she had my novel in her drawer, in her desk drawer, and she said, this is the most marvellous book. I've enjoyed it so much. How on earth do you write it? The characters are so wonderful. Where on earth do you meet people like that? I thought, well, you don't meet them. You make them up. 
Um, and uh, anyway, she went, blah, blah, puff, 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 love this book. So after a while, timid and inexperienced as I was, I said, uh, are you saying you're going to publish my book? And she said, ha, ha, are you joking? Me, publish this? And she just played cat and mouse with me the whole time. And then after a while, she said, I said, you know, I think this isn't getting anywhere and I'll just take my typescript back if you don't mind. She wouldn't give it back or, or she had it and she said, now I tell you what we are going to do. You are going to leave this with me. We're going to put this novel on hold and then together we are going to write your next novel. <laughs> And somebody said, oh, she's come from America, and that's called creative editing. Um, I thought, this is a mad woman. You know, she wants to write a novel, but she doesn't know how, and she wants me to. So um, I said, you know, I think I'd rather just take my book back, and no, thanks. And she was in such a filthy temper. It still sticks in my mind as a really bizarre episode in my very sort of... Uh, um, badly managed early career. <laughs> uh, anyway, let me let me stop. But that's my experience of publishing, really. <laughs> Thank you.